Uh, Matthew will be the first three chapters, and this morning we begin our thoughtful, at least I hope, thoughtful journey into Christmas morning. Uh, We carve out the four Sundays that lead up to Christmas, and we carve those out so that we can focus on the first coming of Christ when he took flesh. So much occurs in those moments. So much is being fulfilled and declared in that first coming that we feel that is very wise for us as a church family to slow down and reflect rather than speed up and forget, as is the habit of some during the holiday season. It gets busy. Now, we're going to do this, this slow down and reflect. We're going to do this by considering the first three chapters of Matthew. Now, um, we have spent time in Matthew in the past, but these chapters will help provide for us a good opportunity to slow down and reflect upon the first coming of Christ. Now, as we consider these first three chapters of Matthew, as Anytime you consider the Bible, it's going to be good for us. (laughs) Of course it's going to be good. But what is unique about these first few chapters is going to be very similar to what we were doing in Hebrews. Where Hebrews considers the Old Testament in regards to the work of Christ upon the cross. We've seen that very specifically. Matthew considers the Old Testament as well. But it considers the Old Testament in regards to the birth of Christ. The first four chapters of Matthew are replete with Old Testament references that apply to baby Jesus. (laughs) Actually, one commentator said it this way, Matthew contains the greatest number of links with Judaism and the Old Testament. It probably was placed first in the collection of the Gospels, when they were initially brought together in the second century, and it was viewed as on par with the already existing Hebrew scriptures. So we've been doing this type of thinking for months now. Old Testament texts applied to the person and work of Christ. So for the next few weeks, it's going to be similar in looking at Old Testament allusions, Old Testament quotes, but yet it's going to be different. Because it's going to be applied to baby Jesus. It's just fun to say baby Jesus. I don't don't know, maybe it is for me, but baby Jesus. It's going to be applied and looked at in terms of Christ's first coming. It seems, and perhaps you know this, it seems that Jesus Christ was the plan all along (laughs) in the narrative of scriptures. So this morning, we're going to start in chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. We're going to read just the first verse. It's provided up on the screens for you. I encourage you to open up your scriptures as well if you have those. Um, or you can dial it up on your electronic communication device if you like. Um, but just stay on the scriptures instead. Um, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 1, the first verse. We're going to start there. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It's citing already, isn't it? For some, you're like, oh yeah, oh it is. Because we understand that genealogies are important. Genealogies simply trace someone's lineage. Where did they 
come from. You see, genealogies describe a person. Genealogies describe, just not to insult your intelligence, a real person. A person who is rooted in history that can actually be tracked. A person who has roots. He has a lineage that you can look at. And this isn't odd for us because modern times are obsessed with knowing where someone came from, right? The, the rise in websites to map your genealogy. This kind of proves that we all want to know where did we come from. Now, have any of you done this before? You swipe some spit on a Q-tip, send it to a lab. Voila, you get sent a map. Oh, here's where you're probably from. Your DNA comes from such and such place, so they map it out for you and they show you. I think we understand it matters to us. It matters where we came from and who are the people in our history. Well, it's not too far of a stretch for us to understand that it also mattered in biblical times. This isn't a waste of time, Matthew, thinking, how am I going to fill up my letter here? How am I going to fill up my account of Jesus? I know, I'll go through a bunch of odd names. Well, no. Genealogies actually mattered in biblical times. How do we know this? Well, if you go to the first book of your Bible, Genesis, which, by the way, we spend a lot of time as a church, Genesis uses genealogies consistently. They're all over the place. Why is it doing that? To track the historical movement of God. He moved, He worked. It's trackable. Look. In doing this, it proved his work in a people. So for Matthew to kind of stay in that tradition, it sort of signifies, almost kind of rings a bell. Hey, remember all those genealogies back in Genesis that were saying something important? Well, here is another one. Something is about to be discussed that I need to root it in history. I need to show you the work of God. This is signaling loud and clear just the fact that he's using a genealogy. But what is really interesting is he uses the same word from Genesis 1.1. You see, genealogy is the word Genesis. It's the same exact word that we get the name of our book because it's in the very first verse of Genesis. It's the same exact word. What does Genesis mean? It actually just simply means beginning. And it kind of makes sense that the word Genesis will be used for genealogies, right? Because what are you discussing? The beginning of a person. They came from so-and-so down to so-and-so down to so-and-so. It's really strategic here for Matthew. By using this word, he is tipping off that a new beginning has come. This is exactly how they would have read this. That a new genesis, if you will, is occurring. It's kind of a signal of restoration. They're not unfamiliar of, in the beginning, God created. And by chapter 3, in the beginning, things got a little crazy. It's not too far for them to understand and hear that, wait a minute, why are you starting this way, Matthew? Because Matthew is tipping off, hey, 
There is a new beginning that is occurring. The restoration is coming. The new genesis is upon us. He's saying it is happening. The rescue and restoration that God had promised us, it is here. It's here. It seems that Matthew believes, and we agree, that God is beginning the work of restoring his people. And he's beginning this work in the most unlikely way. In an odd way. And the genealogy tells us about this new genesis, uh, this new beginning, this genealogy of Jesus. It tells us. It's not just a bunch of names thrown onto a page. It's not a bunch of names that you and I can't pronounce. They're significant. Here, in verse 1, before we get to all the names, we get a couple particulars. And here in verse 1, we learned a little bit on the outset about this new beginning, this thing that is happening. And what we find out, literally in verse 1, before we get to a host of names, we get a couple other names. Here in verse 1, we're beginning to understand that this beginning, this restoration, this rescue, this new genesis is wrapped up in a person. Well, that's what we expect. That's what a genealogy is, right? But to begin in this way, to put a person forward, we learn that there's something about this person. What do we learn? Well, this person's name is Jesus, who is the Christ. You see, Christ isn't just the last name of Jesus. It means something. And then we get that Jesus is also the son of David and the son of Abraham. In this first verse, there is a lot that is being said with those references. Now, if you spend any amount of time around here, we we make it a habit to try to see the scriptures working together, like the Bible is kind of having a conversation with itself, and it's unpacking so much stuff. So perhaps as you hear those terms, you start to realize, well, wait, oh, 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 oh. We start to kind of understand a little bit. Because all of those references, or maybe I could say all of their significance, is found in what the Old Testament has already said. Verse 1, new beginning, wrapped up in a person, here's his genealogy, and oh, by the way, he's the Christ, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. I mean, just literally stop there. Thank you, Matthew. We're good. We can move on. There's so much. But this morning, let's explore just briefly what each of these things mean. Christ. This is the way that God communicated his promise of sending a Savior. Why do I say that? Well, the word Christ, it's the word that he used to communicate that something significant has happened because the word Christ refers to the Hebrew word Messiah. This is the word found in the Old Testament. This is the way the Old Testament referenced that a person is coming who is anointed, right? The anointed one. He's the one promised that are going to come and save God's people. So just in this word, it develops over a long history. And if you don't understand that, let's grab coffee this week. I'd love to show you 
the length of scriptures where this is unpacked. But this is the way the Old Testament is, is communicating. Uh, an anointed one is coming, a promised one from God is going to come and save his people. That promise is also wrapped up in the name Jesus. And do you know the name Jesus is going to be defined in verse 21 that Jared is going to look at next week? But this Messiah, this anointed one, was sent by God to save his people. That's how they hear that. That's why when Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, oh, you're the Christ. And Jesus says, you've done it, Peter. You, not, not flesh, but the Lord God the Father has revealed this to you. Because what Peter is declaring is all of these promises. You're the one. You're the man. Or if this is how you speak, you're the dude. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the anointed one, the Messiah, the promised one, who is supposed to come and save us, rescue us. Or we can even put it this way, restore relationship with God. Just in that one word. But it doesn't even stop there. It says also this person, this genealogy you're about to look at is also about a guy named Jesus, who is the Christ, but who is also the son of David. Now, this reference takes us all the way back to 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 to 13. It's here in that section where God communicates the promise more fully, right? And they're expecting that anointed one is coming, but it's here where he kind of teases out a few details. And here's what he says. As a matter of fact, I'll just read it to you, all right? Verse 12, 2 Samuel 7. When your, this is David, when, when David, your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Okay, well, that makes sense from a king, right? He establishes kingdom. But verse 13, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. Anyone want to guess when that's where it is? Forever, right? So not only is this, there's going to be a king come out of the lineage of David, which is no surprise, but yet there's something a bit unique about this lineage. This son of David will not only have his throne, but he'll have it forever. So the Messiah, the anointed one who they've been waiting for, and oh, by the way, that one is also the son of David, therefore writes to the throne. See, there's an offspring, according to this text and uh, belief of the entire Old Testament, that there is an offspring who will be raised up from David that God will establish his kingdom forever. And uh, you don't even have to go just to 2 Samuel, Psalms 32. It captures it very plainly in verse 11. Listen to this. The Lord swore to David a sure oath, for which he will not turn back. What's the oath? Well, it quotes it. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. This is the belief of God's people. The new Genesis is upon us, and it includes this son of David who will be king forever, as promised. Way more than as seen on TV. <laughs> as promised. Son of David is evoking and reminding them that this person is wrapped up this eternal forever kingdom. 
And all of that, that's already glorious, Messiah, anointed one, save us, okay. Oh, the son of David, the, the royal claim to, to the throne forever. And, and all of that gets wrapped up into an even longer promise <laughs> that predates David. A longer promise that's been given to Abraham. See, this person, this Jesus fella, is also the son of Abraham. Here, the new Genesis is connected to the promise God gave Abraham. What's that promise? That his offspring would be many. From his offspring, many would be blessed. That blessing, according to Matthew, is in this person. Is in Jesus Christ. And what we're learning just by, chap- just by verse 1, the kingly Messiah the kingly one who will rescue God's people. Well, this is no ordinary genealogy. Simply by using this structure of genealogy, he is saying this is important. And to see the connections out of the gate before he gets into the particulars is signaling something. This is the man. Oh, this is the one. And that's just verse 1. This morning, I think it's going to be helpful for us to consider what else this genealogy teaches us about this new genesis, the, this new beginning of God, this restoration of God's people through Jesus Christ. We've already seen a good bit of what we learn, but do we do get quite a few names. What do we learn from this genealogy about Christ and the work of God? Well, let's read verses 2 to 17. Who am I kidding? (laughs) There's no way I'm going to read that. (laughs) Many of you are probably going, I cannot wait to hear him read those names. Um, It's been known that I don't enunciate very well, and so therefore it's probably not wise for me to read through all of those names. But verse 17 actually provides some huge help for us, okay? Verse 17 is kind, kind of sums up the entire genealogy. You can look through all the particulars. We're going to pull out a few of them this morning. But I want to read verse 17 because that will give us a sense of what Matthew is doing in this first coming of Christ. Here's what verse 17 says. So all the generations from Abraham to David, that feels strategic already, right? We've already learned So he he chooses to take the generation from Abraham to David, 14 generations between those two, and then he picks it up from David and takes it down to the deportation to Babylon, the Babylonian captivity. That's another 14 generations. And then from that uh, Babylonian captivity to the Christ, 14 generations, right? So the structure is fairly easy. It's broken up into three sections. Each section has 14 generations. Abraham to David, 2 to 6a, if you're writing it down, because verse 6 is broke up into two. David to the Babylonian captivity, 6b to 11. Then the captivity to Christ, 12 to 16. And and this probably isn't really surprising to us that he would structure us this way because he's already tipped off how significant Christ is based upon those two people, right? Abraham, David. So he groups everything together. Now, you may be wondering as much as I did this week and actually for the last several years as I've thought through this, 
why in the world is he accused to do it this way? Well, it's not really completely clear. Because you and I both know there is a lot that is left out. There is a lot more that could have been included. And Luke is the other gospel that provides for us a, a, a genealogy, if you will. And he takes a radically different approach. So Matthew takes it this way and chooses to go this way for whatever reason. But something about this is the best way that Matthew believed, carried alone by the Holy Spirit, to capture his purpose. Now, there are speculations. You want to grab coffee later, I'd be happy to talk through all of them. There are plenty of speculations of why, but they're just, that, that's all they can be, is just simply, maybe he did it this way, maybe he did it that way. But I don't want to leave you hanging this morning. I don't want you to think, is there, can we gain anything from this list of names? Yeah, we can. We can actually gain a lot. You see, because there is a way to approach genealogy that brings out uh, more clear nuances. And if we can pull out more clear, if that works more clear or clearer, nuances, well, this is going to help us to make extremely better and more confident points. So kind of a better way to approach this list of names. Because for some, I will say this, the best approach is not to just skip over it and move on. Though I'll be honest, that's tempting. I mean, who wants to read through this entire list and examine it? But it's in our scriptures. It's in our Bible. And Matthew is saying, let's get excited. <laughs> new Genesis, a new beginning has occurred. So one of the best ways that we can learn, and we actually did, we saw this in uh, Genesis a good bit. Uh, one of the ways that we can do that is where does, where does the, pattern get broke? Where does he veer away from consistency? Because that's the way genealogies are often presented, right? So-and-so begot so-and-so, begot so-and-so, begot so-and-so, begot so-and-so, and it just carries on forever and ever. But what's odd is every now and then there's a little break in the pattern. And I think this can serve us really well this morning. From the Old Testament to here, there's actually a good bit of consistency and how genealogies were kind of unfolded. But I will admit, there's a few things that kind of stand out, not only just uh, comparison to Old Testament, but even within the structure itself, that all of a sudden we're anticipating something and it turns the corner. Just within uh, Matthew 1 itself. Well, here's one in particular that is interesting. One is that Matthew, at a random spot, dead middle, labels David as the king. At the, at the beginning of verse 6, and Jesse, the father of David, and he could have left it there, but he goes, the king. He does not do this with anybody else. You see, there's a break from this internal structure. No one else gets that type of treatment. Most are just fathers of so-and-so, no info about their role, no info about their title. But David's kingship is singled out. Well, this is strategic, I think, for Matthew. Perhaps he's tipping the hat towards Jesus' royal lineage. You see, though Jesus is born in meager surroundings, in a modest home, oh, wait a second, not even a home, 
born to unimportant people, Matthew doesn't want us to forget (laughs) that he is indeed royalty. Not only is he just royalty with claims to the throne, but this specific royalty holds a promise of an eternal kingdom. It's almost dead in the middle. He just wants to say, David, oh, and by the way, the king. Part of the purpose of this genealogy is to show God's sovereignty that works out providentially throughout history to arrive at this moment. You see, as each name unfolds, It reveals that history has been in the hands of God all along. Though a seemingly insignificant child is born to unimportant parents, oh, wait a minute, God is working. You see, this child is the son of David, and he's more than just the son of David. Do you remember David the king? evoking Christ's claim to the royal throne. And we know not just any royal throne, the everlasting throne. You see, also, as each name unfolds, the the tendency might be, as we've said, that just one insignificant person, all these insignificant names. But you know, as all these names unfold as well, you know what, they probably bring back memories of I don't know, a few bleak times. A few moments in the history of God's people where they felt tremendous uncertainty. It's almost as if Matthew, carried along by the Holy Spirit, is saying, yet history has always been in the hands of God. He has been working. If you're with us this morning, and you feel as if God is not involved or unaware, I'm going to say something odd. Remember the genealogy of Jesus. What? Never thought what I would have done that, and that would have gave me much hope. What I'm asking you to remember is that whether you know it or not, God is fully aware. And God is fully engaged. God is not some cosmic person just way off in the distance. With this genealogy, we are to be mindful that there is no power nor circumstance that can thwart God's sovereignty. You hear that this morning? He has every right and privilege to work providentially within the world. And the genealogy proves it. You see, God sees fit to use all circumstances and all people for his glorious ends. He even uses the good and the bad of our lives. Don't believe me? Perhaps we should look a little closer at the genealogy. You see, there's another break in the pattern, or we could say perhaps a unique feature in this genealogy. At several key moments, there's a mention of several ladies. See, the typical procedure is this. Man X begot man Y, 
Or we could say here, Manetz was the father of man. Why? That's, that's kind of the regular rhythm of this genealogy. Manetz was the father of man. Why? And this goes on forever and ever, but there are four different occasions where Matthew throws in the wife. Matthew strategically throws in and reminds them of the wife. Chapter 1, verse 3 is Tamar. Chapter 5, two are mentioned, Rahab and Ruth. And then chapter 6, the wife of Uriah. We all know who that is. But yet strategic, as we'll look at in a moment, to say it that way. We know this is Bathsheba. This is a reference to Bathsheba. It's very interesting when we consider the addition of these names to the genealogy of Jesus. It's just randomly there, thrown in that little section, and we never see it again. It's interesting when you consider these particular additions. You see, all of these ladies are non-Israelites. What does that mean? They're non-ethic people of God. They don't belong to the bloodline, so to speak. They're not of Israelite background. But yet, they're included in God's rescue. They're included in God's new genesis. You see, it's going to become very apparent throughout Matthew's gospel, if you read it in its entirety, it becomes apparent how Gentiles, those outside of Israel, are included in the salvation God is bringing in Jesus Christ. And for you and I in this room, that should be a hearty amen. That God is including in the salvation he is bringing in Jesus, Gentiles. You see, there's more to the rescue of God than just ethnicity. You see, God intends in this new Genesis to make plain that his people are from all walks of life. Just simply by the mention of these names who are not ethnically Israelites. It is screaming, wait a minute, God's coming to rescue his people. Why are they in there? How are they a part of God's sovereign plan? You mean he used them and they're included? Yes, they are. Another interesting point about these specific four individuals being included, a few of them have a bit of a sketchy past. Not only do a few of them have a sketchy past, but the other ones are very clear reminders of not-so-great moments in the life of God's people. Remember Tamar? Her story's found in Genesis 38. You should read it later. I always give you homework every week. You should read Genesis 38 with your family later. This is a story of loss, a story of unfulfilled promises by Judah. The tribe of Judah is very important. We learn from Genesis that from, or at the end of Genesis, that from the tribe of Judah, who's to come? Just say, Jesus, when you're in church, it works. So so Judah needs to keep moving. But this story shows us of unfulfilled promises, specifically by Judah, to do right by Tamar. You see, this is a potential point in the story of God's people where it seems that the faithfulness of God 
will not prevail. Here we go. Ain't going to happen. I mean, this is a real moment in the story of God's people to where they just think, they're going to mess it up. It's not going to happen. Tamar gets a promise from Judah. He doesn't fulfill it. So then what does she do? She makes necessary arrangements through deception to conceive because it's crucial that the lineage keep going. You know what Judah calls her after he finds out? Judah calls her righteous. Non-Israelite. Righteous. Huh. Because Judah knew he failed to do the right thing. You see, it's a reminder of God working despite the shame and sinfulness of his people. What about Rahab? You see, we meet Rahab back in Joshua 2. You know how she's described? Oh, you know. One word. Prostitute. But what Joshua 2 unfolds is her faith that compelled her to hide the two spies sent by Joshua. Remember the story? The spies were tasked with what? Well, spying. <laughs> spying specifically the land of Jericho because what? God's people were about to take the promised land. It's a big moment in the story of God's people. They're finally ready. Joshua's in charge. The two spies go out to spy the land. They were tasked to go look at Jericho specifically because God was about to move and they were going to take the promised land. Well, if not for Rahab, we learn these spies die. And perhaps God's people don't take the land or maybe a later day. She, in essence, saves their lives. You see, it seems that history is in the hands of God. And this prostitute's faith saves these spies. You don't believe me? You should read her words to the spies. Joshua 2, 8 through 13, another homework. Matter of fact, I'm, I demand you read that. It is amazing to hear her faith declared. It is strong. Not only is it strong, but it is full of a complete clear understanding of who the Lord is. Not only does she understand who the Lord is, but she wants to be faithful to him. So she hides the spies, and the Lord promises to protect her family. Oh, she's got more faith. <laughs> more faith than some of ethnic Israelites at this moment in God's story. It's radical. And she's included into this bringing of Christ. He rescues her from the coming destruction. He includes her in the process of fulfilling his promises. Brothers and sisters, those visiting with us, I cannot say this enough. Despite the shame and sin of her past, the Lord saves her. And because of Rahab's faithfulness, do you know who else comes along? Boaz. He comes along. He marries, I don't know, a person called Ruth. 
Now, what's interesting about Ruth, if you know anything about her, she is a Moabite. You're like, Moab up in Utah? No. Moabite is a uh, group of people from Old Testament. Here's the main thing I think that would help put it in perspective for you, okay? Moabites were forbidden to enter the assembly of God. Don't believe me? Read Deuteronomy 23.3. Forbidden. They're named. Forbidden. Do not be in my presence. Yet, here is one in the lineage of Jesus. The most significant piece of God's sovereign puzzle coming together, and there stands a Moabite. Hey! <laughs> it's wild. If you spend time in the book of Ruth, you know, right? The book of Ruth tells a beautiful story of redemption despite the people's past disobedience. You see, Ruth only exists, the book, not the person, it only exists because a couple of Israelites, they leave Bethlehem due to a famine. No food here. They go, and they go to Moab. And while they're there, these Israelites, supposed to be faithfully following everything that God has said, well, while they're there, a, a couple of the sons marry Moabite women, Ruth being one, doing something that they weren't supposed to do. You see, once the sons die and their mother, Naomi, she heads back to her land. She heads back to God's place. Ruth sits by her side to care for her. Though Ruth is almost positive that she will be despised in that land. Naomi actually releases her. Like, don't, you do not need to go with me. Ruth says, no, I want to be faithful to care for you. You need help. Despite how she's received in God's chosen people. She remained faithful when she didn't have to. You see, it was out of disobedience of God's people that she was brought into the family. But yet she remains faithful. We know how the story goes. Boaz sees and he redeems her. Here's a real moment in the story of God's people. Despite the disobedience and unfaithfulness of God's people, the Lord saves and rescues his people, even Gentiles. This is no ordinary genealogy. And then there's little old Bathsheba. I always thought it was interesting that her name included Bath, but Bathsheba. Or actually, the way the text says it, right? Did you catch that? The wife of Uriah. That's actually how the text says it. Her name is not even mentioned, though we know exactly who it is. Literally, by the way that he articulates it, to put Uriah's name out there, let's just, let's just throw his name out there. This places an emphasis on David. You heard me, David's sinful action. What's that sinful action? The murder of Uriah to cover his sin. 2 Samuel, see it? 2 Samuel 11. As Uriah's name is pinned upon the page, David's sin, the king, literally just mentioned before it gets to this, David's sin is front and center, reminding them, despite his sinfulness, God remains 
faithful. Psalms 89 actually says it clear. I did not lie to David. I will keep my covenant. Despite the sinfulness where it looks like, oh no, we're done. David, the man after God's own heart, has done something tragic. God remains faithful. Despite the shame of past actions, God rescues his people. Brothers and sisters, and those visiting with us, this genealogy is exciting. The genealogy of Jesus Christ reminds us of the love of God and his rescue of sinners. There are sinners all up in this genealogy. I don't know any other way to say it. There are sinners all up in it, everywhere, at every angle. And yet, despite all of that, and not only despite the sin, but despite the shame of disobedience or past uh, work that you engaged in, despite the rejection of God, going your own way, despite all of that, God rescues his people. Indeed, a new beginning is coming. A new beginning is happening in the person and work of Christ. We can trust this because God does not lie nor forsake his promises. And oddly, I'll say it again, why? Remember the genealogy. It screams of God's faithfulness. See, this genealogy is a declaration that God is faithful. God works providentially to will and work for his good pleasure. This genealogy declares, despite shame and sinfulness, God rescues his people. No sin, no shame can keep him from rescuing his people. Remember the genealogy. Earlier I mentioned Psalms 89. Let me read this to you. Verse 29 says, this is God speaking, I will establish his, David's offspring forever, and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, and I'm assuming David's included in this to this well, then I will punish their transgressions with a rod and their iniquity with stripes, but I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. Here's the psalmist reflecting on God's faithfulness. And the commentary, see Matthew 1. <laughs> Seeing that reality on display, see Matthew 1. Remember the genealogy. If you're with us this morning and you don't think God is aware, you think he's aloof and uninvolved, remember the genealogy of Jesus. Oh, he's aware. History is in the hands of God. If you're with us full of shame, of past actions, full of guilt from the sinful behavior, 
God rescues sinners. Can you hear that clearly this morning? Despite all of the sin and shame, God rescues sinners. You don't believe that? Look around the room. You don't know everyone well in here? I know most of you well, and I can say it emphatically. God rescues sinners. Just go down the membership list of our church. God rescues sinners. The first coming of Christ and this initial announcement through the genealogy reminds us, despite all of our shame and sinfulness, God works, God moves, God is faithful. This morning, if you're with us and don't know Christ, please grab someone, please. Grab myself, grab our other pastor, Jared. We'd love to chat. This morning, as odd as it may sound, remember the genealogy of Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, your grace and mercy is so evident, so evident in Matthew chapter 1. As we wade through a seemingly sea of names that mean nothing, come to find out they mean a lot. And they remind us of your sovereign providential work within the world. I pray that our hearts are encouraged. I pray that despite our shame and sin, we would see you as a gracious, loving, sovereign God who saves. Father, we ask during this Advent season, our affections for you will grow. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.